You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis. Summer in full swing, very different, new normal as some people say. And and my guest, my regular guest, who hardly needs any introduction, Dr. Harry Hagopian, has said he's a little bit fed up with the new normal. Isn't that so, Harry? Yes, James, it's a pleasure uh, talking to you again. And I am fed up uh, uh, with this new normal. It's uh, learning new tricks, learning new ways of living, learning new ways of interacting with people. And as they say in English, I believe the expression is teaching an old dog new tricks. It's (laughs) difficult for me to adapt to all those rules that keep coming in every day. You can do this, but you can't do that. And then you reverse, you change. It's, It's a bizarre world we're living in. And what worries me is that if I have a distance, an objective, and I know that past that, we're okay, I can say, okay, Harry, be patient. But it's open-ended. Nobody knows when this crisis will end, when the coronavirus will be finally controlled, and when this uh, elusive vaccine will be effective and available. Yeah, absolutely. So really, there's there's much for us to talk about. Um, when neither of us are wearing masks, which is nice, because I think we'd be sweating up already if we were. Well, we're both living in our own uh, places and we're doing this uh, online, James. So I don't have anybody around me and I think you've shut your door as well. So we're safe. Absolutely. Now, I read a tweet that went out shortly before we recorded this program where you describe Middle East analysis as the mothership, which I thought was very nice because you have your intuitive reactions on YouTube. You have your arm wrestling with COVID-19. And of course, we'll come on to coronavirus a little bit in a second. But this is sort of where it all began, certainly for me and you a good 10 years ago. So I like that, the, the mothership. So we're doing hopefully just half an hour today, aren't we, Harry? Yes, on this program? Uh, James, let's uh, let's just do half an hour. So we do not wear out our listeners and our own vocal cords. And I love the mothership, yes. And that's where you and I started many, many years ago. And as a former Trekkie, the mothership has even more <laughs> significance for me. Well, the fuel for the mothership, interestingly, uh, listeners, is Arabica beans, really, isn't it? Because we've both managed to take a quick shot, a little charge up of, uh, you know, well, I suppose we could say this is very suitable for the region, of course. I've got my little espresso cup here and I'm hoping it keeps me going for the next 30 minutes. Are you charged up and ready, Harry? I'm charged up and ready and I've had an Arabic Lebanese coffee with cardamom spices in it. So I have boosted my energies for the next half hour chat with you. Now, you mentioned Lebanon, I think, quite skillfully there or deliberately. I'm not sure. That's going to be a, a principal talking point for us in the next half hour. We'll also talk uh, about Egypt, some of its relations with near or not quite so near neighbours. Jordan, there's a little bit to be said about Jordan and Palestine there. Tunisia, we've just got a couple of points to make on Tunisia. So this is definitely, I know we call it Middle East analysis, but this is the NA in MENA. We are going to talk North Africa as well. But Harry, just before we start with Lebanon, just a quick roundup, if you please, on coronavirus COVID-19 in MENA and the Arab world. What's the state of play? Actually, it's not that different, uh, James, from what is happening across Europe and across the whole world, in the sense that uh, the figures are 
one day they're alarming and then uh, the Arab countries, the MENA and Gulf countries think they've got it under control and then they open up a bit the malls, the shops, uh, uh, the restaurants and coffee shops and suddenly the numbers go up again so there is uh, concern. It's happening all across the region. It's happening in Jordan, Lebanon, uh, the Gulf countries, etc., etc. Uh, some countries are doing better than others uh, at the moment. I think that uh, in Jordan things are better, but if you look at what's happened in Palestine and in Israel, things are not good at all. Uh, they had uh, coronavirus under control uh, initially, but then again, after opening up, after the lockdown was eased a bit, uh, then the numbers went up and there have been demonstrations against the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for not being able to manage coronavirus and for that, of course, impacting unemployment and uh, the economy in the country. Uh, Lebanon was doing quite well, and then the numbers also went up alarmingly. So there's now a lockdown in the Gulf countries. Qatar has said that it is in control of uh, the coronavirus. So it really depends from country to country. But what worries me are two things. Uh, James, in the MENA and Gulf regions. Number one, the lack of transparency when it comes to numbers. I never am too sure of the figures, the numbers of cases, the numbers of mortalities, and the numbers of people who've recovered, because in some of these countries, such as, for instance, Syria, such as even maybe Iraq, the numbers might not be as authentic as we would expect them uh, to be. Uh, and the second thing that worries me is that there is a major Muslim feast coming up in a couple of days' time for three, four days, and it's a time of celebration. And Arab culture, whether it's in the Levant or the Gulf, is one of people getting together. So, of course, when you do that and when the barriers begin tumbling, then the virus is in its glorious moment. So I'm worried about that and I'm worried about lack of transparency. But other than that the MENA and Gulf region is as vulnerable as any part of the world and perhaps even less vulnerable than places like India, Latin America or the United States. And a quick one. I know I said I wouldn't interfere much with our Round the Houses podcast this morning, but it does strike me that sometimes, um, being a cynic perhaps, that COVID-19 has been seen somewhat as an opportunity by some. I mean, in Lebanon, with the dire situation that we'll come on to, the dire economic situation, you know, those protests have been somewhat curtailed by the need to, to follow rules and distances and lockdowns and so forth. And you look at Netanyahu, who you just mentioned yourself, um, his trial, he's sort of, well, I can't, can't turn up to that, can I? So are a few people using this as an opportunist way of dodging pressure? Of course, uh, James, as a, as a golden rule, when uh, politicians get an opportunity, no matter what that opportunity is, they pounce at it, they jump at it, and they use it. And people like politicians and oligarchs and uh, people who are policymakers and decision makers in countries, whether like Lebanon, Israel, or others, of course, avail themselves of those opportunities for their own ends. That, in a nutshell, is also one aspect of politics for you. Absolutely. Right. Let's move into Lebanon. As I just mentioned, and, and can't be escaped, obviously the economic crisis is 
very shocking, actually. You know, third highest debt to gross domestic product GDP in the world. I didn't actually know that. That's pretty alarming. A third of the people at least below the poverty line. Um, daily power cuts, lack of safe drinking water, limited health care, rubbish internet, I'm told as well. I mean, that's all before we talk about the rumblings in, in the South with Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, give us an update there, Harry, because it looks rather desperate. It's quite desperate and it's quite dim, actually. And it 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 pains me that uh, Lebanon, a country that I've always considered, my, my dad did his initial medical studies in Lebanon uh, at the French University there. So there is even a kind of a nostalgic link between me and the land of cedars. And yes, indeed, uh, I mean, you, you pretty much... Uh, summarized all the issues that are uh, plaguing uh, Lebanon at the moment. You have a government that is inept and inefficient, one that does not have a vision and uh, is not basically free to take its own decisions, alas. You have a country where the economy has pretty much tanked, where financial institutions like the IMF are not willing to lend it any money to bail it out, as it were, unless and until uh, Lebanon uh, undergoes structural reforms. But then again, the oligarchs and people who hold positions of power do not want those reforms because they are quite happy with the privileges that they enjoy and to hell with the rest of the people. And hence why you have seen all those uh, demonstrations in the streets, which, as you rightly mentioned, have been somewhat curtailed uh, because of the fear of the uh, pandemic. I'll give you just one example. You talked about unemployment. You talked about poverty. You talked about the Internet not working, the electricity being cut off from all uh, neighborhoods and parts of the country, be they rich or poor. All this is indeed uh, happening, and it is happening as we speak, every day. And even those who use private generators, the people who are going to go on strike who provide those because there isn't the fuel to run those generators. So all that is true between a useless government and uh, politicians from different uh, backgrounds and political convictions who are basically asphyxiating the country between a central bank that is playing its own games uh, in terms of financial finagling uh, rather than thinking about the people with the currency shooting up like there is no uh, tomorrow one one thing i'll uh, one uh, statistic i'll give you save the children which is a respectable ngo that we know of here in the uk as well has said that come the end of the year uh, there might be 1 million uh, kids who will be starving and there will be deaths from hunger this in lebanon the paris or the switzerland of the middle east a few decades ago. So all that worries me. And yet, of course, you have an elite which go to places like Fakra, uh, which is a resort in Lebanon, where they can still enjoy uh, themselves and who are desperately trying to clutch to this vision of Lebanon of the past. And of course, there are people who are trying to do something about it. The Maronite uh, Catholic Patriarch of Lebanon is trying desperately to push for an idea that Lebanon adopts a neutrality vis-a-vis -vis all the conflicts uh, surrounding it so that it doesn't get impacted by it. 
very easily said, not as easily applied, but there is a lot of conversation going about that. Some people support him. Some people say, no, 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 uh, Lebanon is an Arab country. It can't be neutral. Well, I think it can. And, of course, uh, the Maronite Catholic Patriarch is in... uh, conversation with the Vatican, which is also concerned about the uh, situation in in Lebanon. So it is really a jumble. And on top of that jumble, as you kindly mentioned, you had the little skirmish, the little comedy of errors, the little non-war, as it were, that took place between Hezbollah and uh, Israel in the past a couple of days ago, where some Lebanese, because they're so traumatized by all the conflicts in the country over many, many decades, thought that this is going to be another major war. But what was happening is that Hezbollah and Israel were, I think, playing psychological warfare at the moment. And I hope that my analysis is correct when I say that neither side is willing or ready to go into a real war in the southern uh, Lebanon at the moment or North Israel, uh, but that they are just basically trying to flex their muscles and remind each other of the stupidity of going into a major uh, confrontation All this in a tiny little country plagued by everything from coronavirus, lockdowns, uh, to economic meltdown, to political corruption, and now also to more uh, political swords of Damocles hanging on ordinary people's heads. Uh, A shame, but that for you uh, is Lebanon, uh, uh, James, a country that has less and less cedars as well. (laughs) single question from me. When I was reading up around Lebanon thinking, what a mess, I mean, what what is to blame? And we've talked about this before. But on one of the more simplistic analyses, it said political sectarianism is to blame. You know, everyone's looking after their own interests. And I suppose what is a little bit heartbreaking is you look at it as a template. You see that there's, you know, representation from, from the major religions. And you think, surely that's a good thing. That's a way of living in harmony. Yet some analyses are blaming the political sectarianism for all the woes of the country? Well, political sectarianism or confessionalism is is part of the problem. It is not the only problem. There was a time when uh, uh, Lebanon distinguished itself in the Arab world by being the only country that did not have a strong central government. And it basically had all those parties that belonged to various uh, confessions, various interests, various uh, religious uh, sects. And people used to say that that is the secret of the success of Lebanon, that it doesn't have this heavy-handed central government that basically controls everything like in other Arab countries where you cannot breathe without the central government coming and telling you how much oxygen you are allowed to breathe in and out. Uh, So that was that. But at the moment, with the central government completely sort of disintegrating, having a government there, having a prime minister who really is only a figurehead that is not being able to uh, come up with a vision for the country or apply any kind of structural reforms, you also have those Uh, various interests of the various political parties, be they uh, Christian, Muslim, Druze, Armenian, whatever, all those countries are looking after number one. So put the fact that, that there is a lack of a central government, there is a lack of what I call Lebanon as an identity as a, and as a message, with all those little satellites orbiting around it, each one trying to poach and to get as much 
for itself as it can, then uh, after a, a, a while, when the vultures come and peck at the corpse, there's nothing left of the corpse. And that is basically where we are at the moment with Lebanon. And unless the Lebanese prove that they are willing to stand up for their own rights and interests, and therefore inviting uh, friendly countries like France and others to come and help, then Lebanon at the moment is unfortunately, and I say this with a very sad heart, one of those countries that is beginning to show symptoms of a failed state. Well, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Let's stick with the Middle East and then we'll move to North Africa, I think, because that seems to be a sensible way of doing it. So look, Jordan, Prime Minister Omar Razaz said something quite interesting, actually, that you and I had a very brief chat about before we started recording. And not that we're anywhere near it, but obviously with the failure of the two-state solution with Israel-Palestine, um, he sort of intimated, as an aside in a way, that Jordan could support a one-state solution if Israeli-Palestinian rights are equal. Now, I mean, what, what what you think of that, I'm not sure, because we've obviously got the potential annexation of the West Bank bubbling in the background as well, which Jordan has, has said it fears would be a new apartheid state. So what's the deal with Jordan, particularly with regard to Israel-Palestinian relations? That's an interesting comment that the Prime Minister of Jordan, Omar Razaz, did uh, come out with, uh, James, you're absolutely right. And uh, uh, don't forget that Jordan has been at the forefront of the Arab countries and of the world, actually, uh, against the idea of annexation that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Donald Trump uh, sort of cooked up together some uh, months ago. And also don't forget that Jordan is a neighbor to both Israel and Palestine, and that uh, at least half the Jordanians have Palestinian extraction or background in their genes. Put all this together and you would wonder why did the Jordanian prime minister, who's only been in power there for two months, uh, one of the things about Jordan is their prime ministers change as quickly as I change uh, blue jeans. And in a sense, the what has happened there is that he was doing a few things by digressing from the official political line of Jordan and of pretty much most of the world today, whether it's realistic or not is another matter, but most of the world today from the European Union to the Arab League to other countries are saying the two-state solution, the two-state solution, the two-state solution. It's a nice mantra. It rhymes well. It's easy on the ear. It doesn't mean anything today in the reality of what's happening in Palestine and in the occupied territories. But the reason why Jordan digressed and its prime minister digressed is twofold. On the one hand, it's a hint to Israel that, listen, if you do not become serious about the two-state solution, and if you do not give some leeway, some scope for the Palestinians to be able to found their own uh, sovereign state, then you're going to end up with one state where it's going to be a binational reality with equal rights and equal responsibilities. And I've always said this to you and to others, if some Israelis 
are loath to give the Palestinians their own state, imagine what they would feel if they were to have all those millions of Palestinians in their midst uh, having the same rights as they do. Go and ask somebody in the Green Line. In other words, the Arab Israelis, the Palestinians who live in Nazareth and the Galilee and elsewhere, tell them, do you have the same rights as Israeli Jews? They would laugh you out of the room because, of course, they don't. Uh, and in a sense, discrimination is as rife there as it is elsewhere in that region we often talk about. But uh, it was Omar Raza saying, be careful, because you might end up with something that you like even less than uh, now. And the other hint he was giving is to say, if you really go ahead with this annexation folly of yours, which is basically Netanyahu's way of saving his own hide Uh, both from the court and politically, uh, then you're going to end up with something that is going to be hurtful or painful. That, I think, what Omar Razaz was trying to do. But the public reaction in Jordan was so negative to what he said, because most people aren't going to sit there and analyze why did he say it, what are the subtleties, what are the nuances. They heard their prime minister saying, you know what, We forget the two-state solution. In other words, we forget a Palestine, a sovereign, contiguous Palestine, and we say one country, call it Palais or Israel or whatever it is. And uh, uh, they said, no, 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 this is this is unacceptable, etc., etc., which brings us back to something you and I have often talked about, which is that it's not the Arab rulers who are supportive of Palestine. It's the ordinary men and women of the Arab world who are still supportive of Palestine as a reality and as an idea. And this became quite manifest with this small example. So I'm glad you you sort of uh, referred to it because it's important. Now, look, you said to me that you're going to be more lawyer than political analyst in an effort for us to hammer through this being nice and sharp and succinct. So I, I shall try not to uh, encourage our more excitable conversational side of things for, for the time being. So let's shunt into North Africa. And of course, some, some of the related stuff is slightly further south than the north uh, and Egypt. Now, Egypt and South Africa probably have the worst COVID rates, seeing as we mentioned COVID at the start of this podcast. Um, so Egypt's grappling a bit with that. But also, and this is what you wanted to talk about, Harry, relations with Libya and interestingly, Ethiopia, because I, I didn't know so much about the latter. Tell us a little bit more about the sort of threat to invade Libya and issues of water, the, the new gold in a way, uh, in Ethiopia. Absolutely, James. And I'm not going to really talk about it as much as hint at it or basically just give a couple of thumbnail sketches and then people can very easily, these days, there's nobody who can fail to be informed if he or she wants to be informed. Uh, in terms of Egypt, what worries me is that Libya is in a mess. Uh, at the moment, it's as much in a mess as before. Uh, you've still got East Libya and you've got West Libya. East Libya is still pretty much controlled by uh, Hifter and by Aguila Saleh, his deputy, who is now pretty much taking over from him. And I think he is a more acceptable political figure than Hifter, who's, a, who's megalomaniacal in his attitudes. And he was pumped up by some Arab and Gulf states, unfortunately, and he thought he would become the next Gaddafi of Libya. But uh, 
the East is the East and the West is the officially recognized GNA or the officially recognized uh, state of Libya by the UN, the European Union, etc., etc. Those two are still fighting it out. And if you look at Libya today, the United Arab Emirates is pumping arms uh, for one side. The uh, Turks are there helping the other side. The Russians are there with their uh, agents and with their uh, people trying to impact or influence the outcome in Libya. And it is it is really a mess. And what worries me about Libya, and a tweet I did a few days ago, which got surprisingly a lot of retweets and comments was one where I said that I'm worried that Libya is gradually going the way of Syria. Too many militias, too much chaos and corruption, uh, too much uncertainty, too many proxies and too many people trying to uh, change the reality of Libya, which eventually would mean that means that it would come off its center of gravity and it would become basically another example of a failed state like Syria. And in, in a sense, uh, Egypt and Sisi, who himself is a bit of a despot and he believes uh, too much in himself, he's quite narcissistic in that sense also. And he's sort of saying that we want to preserve the uh, interests of Egypt uh, because of the proximity, because of uh, the fact that he doesn't like the officially recognized state and he's an ally of the renegade Haftar. Uh, all this is making things people a bit edgier because if Egypt does get involved militarily in Libya, that is going not to make things easier. It's not a solution. It's another component to the problem. And I think basically that uh, Sisi, President Sisi of Egypt is a bluffer. He basically throws uh, ideas around and he does not necessarily follow them through. He hopes that they will have enough impact to change the course of events. So even if he were to go in, which I somehow doubt, I might regret this and I might eat humble pie in a few days or weeks time, but I really do not think that he's going to invade uh, Libya. And if he does, it's going to be very limited around areas which are the gateways toward the oil and processing refineries. But even that I'm not too sure about. But it is making the situation even more complicated because if you have the UAE, if you've got Russia, if you've got Turkey, if you've got France, if you've got even Italy, and now you have Egypt and other countries getting involved, in addition to the multiplicity of militias, uh, in in Libya, either militias who are Libyan or mercenaries who are coming from everywhere, from Sudan to Russia, uh, th- it makes the situation worse. So that's what worries me about uh, Egypt's uh, threats, whether they're empty threats or not. And also uh, another series of threats uh, that Egypt's president did and he's now backed down on is that in Ethiopia, the Ethiopian prime minister built a dam well, he didn't build it himself, but you know what I what I mean. Uh, it built a dam, a dam, in order to gather uh, water from the Nile and from the rainfalls because of the droughts and because of the uh, lack of water and the water shortage. You said it beautifully when you called it the new gold. And therefore, of course, Egypt and to a somewhat lesser extent Sudan got all riled up, and Egypt started. Uh, threatening and uh, promising fire and brimstone. And now it's calmed down a bit and it's agreed that the only way to resolve this is a trilateral 
set of negotiations which have been ongoing for months now between Sudan, Egypt and Ethiopia on the legal and practical modalities of how to share this water and also uh, people like the European Union, the African Union and others are helping as well. So all I would do is invite listeners to keep an eye on uh, Egypt's sense of adventurism Uh, particularly with somebody who's a a real dictator, look at the jails. They're full of people who want to speak their minds out and they're they're thrown in jail. Uh, Egypt is... uh, is something to look at both in terms of Ethiopia and in terms uh, of Libya. And of course, Ethiopia is a country I personally like because I think uh, it's also got some beauty. All these countries are so beautiful. James, Yemen is one of the most beautiful countries I've ever seen. And I've got so many uh, stories and so many adventures in, in Yemen. But look at the state of it. Who would go in their right mind to these countries, which are basically caught up in unending waves of warfare and murderous violence? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? I'd, I'd love to go to Yemen. I'd love to go to Benghazi. I'd love to go to Libya. Um, but really, as you say, who in their right mind would at the moment? So it's a very sad state of affairs, isn't it? It is. And the Yemenis are wonderful people and they've got a culture of their own. They're quite uh, inclusive people. They do not have, and they did not have, I don't know, people are changing these days. Uh, because outside peoples are make, forcing them to change and make choices. But uh, the people, they're not ideological. They are people who are open to others, inclusive to others. I like the uh, Yemeni architecture. Look at some of their houses in Sana'a and other places. And of course, Yemen was divided into two. You had the so-called Islamist North and you had the so-called Marxist South, uh, Sana'a and, and, and Aden. And then they united in the 1990s. And now some countries, including some countries that remain unmentionable, but you would guess who I'm talking about, in the Gulf are trying to cleave, to break that union again and to have Aden being separate from uh, Sana. So much is happening. I mean, this business of populism really annoys me. Well, I'll tell you what, Harry, Yemen probably deserves some of our time post-summer. We can Yemen does deserve some of our time, and I'm very fond of uh, Yemen. And uh, a friend of mine... Uh, uh, who knows Yemen quite well. He and I have wonderful conversations about Yemen and our souvenirs uh, in Yemen as well. I went there with a, with him, with the, one of my former partners as well. And it's, it's, it's really nice. It's a shame. It's a shame. Egypt, a cradle of civilization. Yemen, beautiful civilization. Uh, the Middle East, the Levant, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, a, an IT hub All these countries are so good, and yet political minds, and not always only political minds, come and demolish, destroy, uh, discriminate, and make life so difficult for the ordinary Arabs living there who are just trying to get their uh, morsel of food and their uh, pita bread. Shame, shame, shame. Sad. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, my grandmother was born in Alexandria. So, you know, I've, I've got a soft spot for Egypt. Listen, your grandmother was born in Alexandria. My parents had their honeymoon in Alexandria, James. So we have another common point that maybe one day we could compare albums. <laughs> yeah, 
happier times, hopefully. But Harry, if you wouldn't mind just giving us um, a a tiny postscript by looking at Tunisia, because, I mean, you know, again, to mention Corona one final time, surely their tourism has taken a major hit, which is a big industry for Tunisia. A lot of Brits go to Tunisia. Um, There's a new prime minister designate, isn't there? And forgive me if I pronounce this wrong. Hichem Mechichi. I love it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, that that tells me how badly, incorrectly I've done that. Go on, go on, you do it. It's Hichem Mechichi. Oh, so much better. So much better. The former interior minister, I think. The former interior minister, a legal scholar and advisor to the president of uh, uh, Tunisia. All people really need to know now about Tunisia. And again, it's one of those wonderful countries, really nice country. Yasser Arafat of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, before he went to Ramallah, he spent a few years of so-called exile in uh, Tunisia, as well in the capital, in Tunis. Uh, He was quite famous for changing countries every now and then, Jordan, Lebanon, Tunis, and then eventually ended up in Ramallah before he was murdered. And in a sense, uh, Tunis is a beautiful country, and yes, it does depend on uh, uh, tourism substantially, and that has been gutted uh, quite a bit, just like it's been gutted everywhere, including in our own backyard. Look at Spain, Italy, and others. So in a sense... Uh, all I want to say about Tunisia is that there was a prime minister, Fakhfakh, who basically uh, didn't last long, had to resign or was forced to resign. And now Qais Saeed, the, uh, the president of Tunisia, uh, appointed, designated uh, Hisham Mshayshi to be the uh, the new prime minister. Let's hope that he manages to form a government. And again, the, basically the point there is political interest, parties uh, caught up in a tug of war. You have the Anahda party, which is an Islamist party led by Ghanoushi, which is pushing in one side and you've got the secularists pushing in another side and everybody wants a piece of Tunisia. And when you know that Tunisia is a small uh, country, we come back again to the vultures and, and uh, corpses. And in a sense, uh, I'm being very sort of... Uh, I don't know what the word is, but I'm sort of throwing in aside quite liberally today. Uh, James, forgive me. Uh, I'm being a little bit judgmental, so listeners, please forgive me too. Uh, but uh, let's hope that it will work and that this guy will be able uh, to form a government because Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria and Libya are four key states in the North Africa uh, region, in addition, of course, to Egypt, we spoke about, and therefore, uh, I hope that uh, I hope that uh, he'll succeed. But if that one also goes down the drain, then I don't know what will happen. What new parliamentary elections? Uh, we seem to be having elections every two, three months, but that doesn't uh, resolve anything. Part of what's happening, James, is that post the 2010-2011 Arab Springs, until then, all those Arab rulers. Look at Saddam Hussein in, in, in Iraq. Iraq was a safe country so long as you didn't cross swords with the Ba'ath regime and with the president Saddam Hussein. But in all those countries in the Arab world, no matter whether they try to adopt the veneer of benevolence or the veneer of pugnacious uh, dictatorships, they have their hands so heavily on the lid. People aren't allowed to breathe. People aren't allowed to speak. People aren't allowed to think. People are only supposed to do what they're allowed to do by their governments and go and work and get their money and just keep uh, stum. 
In 2010-2011, to use a term you and I have used often in the past, the genie came out of the bottle, and therefore suddenly a new reality dawned, a new normal, as it were, for the whole of the MENA region, uh, whereby people started looking at new realities. You can speak, you can think, you can express your opinion, you can be different, you can do what you want, you can make, you can have expectations and make demands of your government rather than the government uh, making demands of you, which is quite interesting because who's there to serve the other? And all this suddenly happened and that created this, this havoc because all these repressed uh, centrifugal forces came out suddenly and they're all flitting in different directions and it's going to take a while of pain, of patience, of resilience, of hope before gradually, I hope, it will all come back together in a better better form or structure. At the moment I look around me, I don't hold out much hope, but then hope springs eternal, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, actually, that, you know, there, there are many poor presidents trying to get prime ministers to form new governments and failing in the Middle East, North Africa. But then I thought, hang on, isn't that the case in world politics? It seems to be pretty difficult to form a government anywhere with the various dissatisfaction and, and problems at the moment. Everything's a bit polarised. Everything's a bit negative. But one quick point, Harry, um, I think you're going to, much as the BBC does, have to set up a Middle East analysis pronunciation unit that I can con- <laughs> that I can consult with prior to our podcasts. So give me one more time the name of the Prime Minister. Hisham Mshesi. Mshesi. I love Very those. Nice I love those North African names. You will have. It will be a joy to listen to you pronouncing those names because they're quite difficult. They're even more difficult than the names in the Levant or what we know as the Middle East. Uh, in North Africa, if you look at some of those Moroccan names, Algerian names, you really have to have some grounding in Arabic and in the ability to use guttural chords in order to be able uh, to pronounce their names uh, uh, properly. So, uh, yes, given that the pronunciation unit at the BBC has seen better days, maybe you and I can do a substitute one. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'm about to hand over to you because we're, we're nearing the end for, for your final thought on this Middle East analysis. Um, but why don't we, because I know you have a little bit of a, a sense of fun there, Harry. You like the jocular stuff. Why don't you give me five names, either from um, North Africa or the Middle East, of politicians, religious leaders, whoever they might be. I mean, be a bit playful, find find tough ones to pronounce, and we'll do a, a real and guessed version. So I will have I will guess at how they, they should be pronounced, and I won't cheat, I promise. And then you can actually pronounce it correctly. Well, that would be interesting, because one I gave you is Msheshi, another one is Fakhfakh, another one is Magharbi, another one is Rai. I'm giving you names that your chords aren't used to, 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 you don't use those chords. It's not just the name. It's not just the way, because the accent is on the first part or the second part of a name. But what it also is, is, is uh, words like kh and and r are words that are not necessarily in most uh, Indo-European languages. So these are the words that uh, you might have uh, some uh, some problems with. So these are these immediately come to mind. But then again, it's not always easy to say something like Khrushchev, for instance, uh, which which you can also pronounce as Khrushchev. 
So it really depends. I enjoy that because I like languages and I like to sort of make sure what uh, I'm pronouncing. Well, I remember I gave you what would have to be described as one of the trickiest Bible passages in a former life for you to give us the genealogy of Jesus Christ, because that has a lot of pronunciation issues, I must say. Absolutely. And uh, uh, since you went to the Bible, look at the father of monotheism, Abraham, in Arabic is Ibrahim. In English, two of his sons are Isaac and Ishmael. In Arabic, it's Ismail and Ishaq. So it, it really depends on how you pronounce it. And when I'm talking about a language, because, I mean, their roots are uh, Levantine, these people. Their roots are not European. So if you want to be really fussy about it, then Europeans should try to pronounce the names in the real Arabic way rather than Arabs trying to Europeanize or Westernize or modernize their pronunciation so Europeans understand it. But guess what? This is also one of the outcomes of colonialism. I won't go there now. (laughs) Well, I have to say I find it fascinating. Harry, what would you like to leave our listeners with at the end of this podcast? Well, since you ended pretty much and we went 10 minutes past our self-appointed 30 minutes, but never mind, please, listeners, forgive us. And you can listen in tranches, one country at a time. It's only about seven, eight minutes each. Let me only say... Eid Mubarak, because it's Al-Adha feast, the feast of the sacrifice more for Muslims for the next three days. And uh, the feast of the sacrifice that the Muslims believe in is uh, with Abraham and his son Ishmael. And for Christians, it's between Abraham and Isaac. So Eid Al-Adha is Uh, happening. And Eid al-Adha, of course, happens after the big Hajj in Saudi Arabia. And given the coronavirus uh, this year, all uh, non-Saudis and non-residents in the kingdom have not been allowed to go uh, to Saudi Arabia to do the Hajj. And therefore, it's the tourism and the income of the country. Hajj is the second highest income in Saudi Arabia after oil, by the way, some 12 billion per annum. And uh, uh, that hasn't happened to go around the black stone, as some of our listeners might have seen it on the on the television. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, Eid al-Adha, Eid Mubarak to all Muslims and a happy week, a happy month, and a happy summer to everybody else until we meet again. And then Vera Lynn, the late Vera Lynn, might uh, go in with a song here, uh, James. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to play that from the archives now. Are you going to make 100 years old, Harry? Well, if uh, I make it uh, in the next few years, I will consider myself uh, lucky, James. But you know what? Again, to amuse you, in Arabic, the saying goes, Al-A'mar biyadillah which means your age, how long you lived, is in God's hands. Now, of course, that is for a believer. A non-believer would sniff at this and say, come on, it's all physiological when your body collapses. But never mind. It's a nice saying, so maybe we can leave it in that and hope for the best until you and I meet again. And I suppose it will have to be online again. Well, indeed, Harry. And and to be honest, you make me think about that. Both our bodies seem to be in a permanent state of collapse, but we are still here for the time being. So thank you ever so much, listeners. I think to reiterate what um, Dr. Harry Hagopian said just then, you can break this down. It does fit very nicely as we sweep across the Middle East and then on into North Africa into sort of separate 
country chunks and realities. So I'll pop up a few time codes. And if you want to move on to the next thing or jump straight in at the next thing, then uh, feel free. But for now, Dr. Harry Hagopian, thank you very much indeed and and have a good summer. Thanks, James. Uh, Thanks for your efforts with our mothership Middle East analysis, but far more importantly, also thanks for your friendship. Oh, and you too, Harry. Take care.